This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. Welcome to the first ever podcast. My name is Jeremy Bohm. I am your host. And if it is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. My guest this week for episode 133 is Greg Antonito of the band The Bouncing Souls. Huge honor. They have a brand new record coming out March 24th on Pure Noise Records called 10 Stories High, and then they kick off a full U.S. tour in April. Check out the dates over on their sites, their Instagram. You get the deal. I want to let you know that there's a bonus episode available right now where Greg answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. You can access that over at patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon. You can subscribe for as little as $3 a month and get access to a lot of bonus episodes. I do bonus radio hours. You get a Discord channel access. Subscribe for a little more and you can submit questions to upcoming guests. All sorts of fun stuff happens over there. Plus, in the end, it just helps support the show and that means a whole lot. Another way you can do that is subscribing to the show on Spotify, Apple, wherever it is you're listening to this, telling your friends, leaving a positive rating and review. All of these sorts of things help a lot. And uh, it's the reason we all ask you to do it. And hey, if you want to write to me, maybe you got a question, a comment, anything, you can hit me at the first ever mailbag at gmail.com. I will not take up any more of your time. Here is my conversation with Greg Antonito. What's up, Greg? How are you? It's uh, it's nice to meet you like this. How you doing? I'm good. Good to meet you too, Jeremy. Um, just a... Uh... Enjoying the winter up here in Idaho. Just shoveled some snow on the deck. Uh, still, still happy with winter. I'm not sick of it just yet. Yeah, being from from New Jersey, what's the what's the the difference in the winter that you're experiencing now? Because as we were just talking off my uh, before we hit record here, you're in Idaho. Yeah. So, uh, so, so yeah, how can you compare the winters in Idaho to the winters in uh, in New Jersey these days? Well, I have to say. Um, the thing about the Idaho winters is it's sort of the everything about winter that you want, which is like a lot of snow and then you get sunshine. So it's like winter wonderland kind of winter, whereas the East Coast winter is pretty much cold and wet and gray to generalize. Um, so they are almost two very extreme differences. Like this is the fun skier winter out here and in new jersey it's just you gotta kind of like yeah survive it so you get you're waiting for spring and there's not much 
there's not like, oh, there's fun spring skiing. Let's go the sun shining. Let's go out and snowboard in the sunshine, you know. So or hike or you know whatever, um, play in the snow. Um, so it's fantastic as far as winter. It's the kind of winter you want to have. Oh, that's awesome. It was that like a big motivator for you to end up, uh, you were saying you're like outside of Boise. So I'm imagining that's like a, is it like a ski town sort of area? Well, it's funny. I being from New Jersey, you know, of course I see the world through a Jersey kid. I can't stop, stop that. <laughs> so in Boise, um, I live a hundred miles North of Boise in this little town called McCall. And there's a lake that essentially is kind of like the summer destination for people from Boise. So I kind of, on some level, I call it the Jersey shore of, of, of Idaho, because just like in New Jersey, you know, everybody from Northern central Jersey in the summertime, get in cars, drive an hour down to the Jersey shore and spend the, the summer at the beach. People from Boise are packing up their boats and driving up to the lake, you know, up here. So um, I live at the Jersey shore of Boise in the summertime. It's a really pretty lake. The town, the town, the town is, uh, you know, it's a nice little town. And then in the wintertime, it turns into a ski town. There's like two ski mountains. And so it's kind of a, uh, you know, sort of a vacation spot because it's pretty remote, but that's changing because so many people are moving here. Um, people are able to work remotely. So all of the dynamics, it's, it's actually having sort of a, bit rough growth spurt i think is sort of what's happening in a lot of remote areas around the country for pros and cons on um, all sides of it i think uh because like i said the internet's not very good so i think lots of people probably would move here if the internet was better like bigger companies could move in and whatnot but that's not quite happening yet but it might we'll see yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so you're from, uh, I was looking up, so you guys are from Basking Ridge, yeah. New Jersey. And it's fun to, it's fun to sort of like look up little things about those towns. And um, I'm sure this is uh knowledge that you, you take with you, but uh, yeah. some Meryl Streep yeah. is from Basking Ridge, right? That's so fun. No one's ever, ever, um, ever <laughs> asked that or mention, even mention it in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. She, she grew up well. I think technically she grew up in Bernardsville, but I could be wrong. She went to Bernards High, as far as I know, which was just a mile from my house. Um, but yeah, I mean, Meryl Streep grew up there. I, you know, and there isn't much chatter about it. You know, I didn't learn about it until like way later, like you know, whatever in my twenties or something. Um, but yeah, that's a fun fun fact, of course. And there's a, also a ton of cool, you know a handful of cool famous people from New Jersey, which of course I'm going to be proud of. <laughs> oh, for, yeah, no, no doubt. It's just, yeah, it took me by surprise when I was looking up uh, uh, the Basking Ridge thing. And part of me would almost wonder if like they have like a, like a monument dedicated to her, you know, like in the town square, like a, a big statue of Meryl Streep. Yeah. I mean, there should be, <laughs> again, I, I don't, I don't follow her or anything or like if she keeps any sort of connection to the town at all or anything, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, once, whenever that subject comes up, you know, you're like, yeah, like let's go yeah. to somebody's high school yearbook, you know, or whatever. It's probably all online now, but you know, that would be fun to check out. Sure. 
Definitely, definitely. Um, so, well, the first question I usually ask musicians is, uh, when you were growing up, what was the first thing that you connected with musically that felt like it was yours? Maybe not something that was being played in the house, you know, by your parents, but like something that made you feel like you had your own identity. Um, yeah, that's a, I think, you know, I, I could say certain records maybe that I got, you know, like, I, I definitely connected early on with like Bruce Springsteen, you know, it's, it's almost ridiculously, uh, you know, too, so Jersey of me. It's almost, you know, ridiculous to say, <laughs> it, but it's very true, you know, like, and I think yeah. uh, as much as at that, you know, the early eighties or mid eighties, when he really came out with the born in the USA thing, like I could identify him. I knew where he, the town he grew up, you know? So I really, you know, connected to him because I knew I was like, he came from here. He came from this town. He came from Freehold. And I knew Freehold. It was right near my grand grandparents' house. So that was I could I guess you could say that may, was one of the first, you know, that I could listen to those songs and really understand it on on the ground level, literally. I was like, this is about me, you know. Yeah. Um what was, uh, do you remember the first album that maybe you bought with your own money? Like maybe you got like an allowance or something like that, that you were like, oh, I need to own this. We used to get, we, there was a record store in Orange and we would get our on a skateboard. It was like a big event. I mean, I don't remember. I mean, I knew, I know, remember a couple of records, but it, it was like about the journey back then it, it was about you know we're like oh it's saturday we have whatever it was like 10 bucks it would be like two bucks or something two and a half bucks for the round trip train ride we get we go uh -huh. up to new jersey transit get skate to the train station get on the, this was the whole experience for me it wasn't just the record you know going to the record shop was a thing that it was a whole experience that you was like Oh, cool! This is for for me. This is I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna spend an hour, and I'm only gonna buy two records. Maybe that that was a big deal. Maybe I only had enough money yeah. to one. So that I remember almost more than the actual record. But you know, back then it was probably I remember buying a Cramps record that I really wanted, and uh, um, it was like bad music for bad people. Like we, ha I had seen them, and I think it clicked for me those things were worth when you if you want to extract that feeling where it's like it felt like it was my thing it, it came yeah. more more bruce springsteen preceded that because that was the first thing i connected to where i really related to the music as opposed to hearing pop music on the radio which i definitely moved me on on, on some ways too like as a kid through the 70s and 80s but then when I went to my first show, it was like City Gardens in Trenton, which is a very famous, iconic place, which we kind of grew up there, walked in the door and heard like it was like ska night or reggae night. And I hadn't really heard that kind of ska and reggae up to that point. We're talking about like rock steady and stuff. I just was like the environment was just a whole other environment. It was just this is this is what I want to be a part of. I don't know what it is. I can't even say what it is, but like this vibe, I had not walked into a room with that kind of vibe. So that yeah. moment sticks with me 
deeply, deeply. And that was in that place, City Gardens in Trenton, which I ended up seeing so many cool shows, like a diverse shows. I saw like cool punk bands and hardcore bands from DC, like Meat Men and they were incredible. Like they're not a huge, they didn't go very far. Um, but the show they put on was unreal, blew my mind. And um, I saw like Toots and the Maytals there, which was like, what a scene that was, you know, like seeing Toots and the Maytals like roll out, smoke, puff and smoke through the crowd, gets on stage, you know, like <laughs> it was yeah, blowing my little kid mind, you know, big time. And moving me to a, a place that I had never been to. And uh, I saw Debbie Harry there. I saw we and later on the Bouncing Souls opened up for the Ramones there, which of course was this like incredible, amazing thing. You can there's a flyer online, you know, it's like posted up in mm -hmm. our book that we did too. It's really like again, we've arrived somewhere just by we got to share the stage with the Ramones at city gardens which is was also was like if we could ever play at city gardens you know so that was also a big thing we we got to finally play there and we were so excited that we forgot to get paid and the, the guy <laughs> who who owned who ran who put on the shows like i remember coming back like next week or whatever to see some show and he comes up he's like hey greg you guys it was great you guys forgot to get paid uh let me i mean give you, i gotta give you 50 bucks you know and we were like, oh, my oh God. Okay. that's how yeah. that, it shows you the mind of the bouncing souls was just like, we were just so yeah. that excited that we were like hanging out in outside this, probably in the parking lot after the gig, whatever, <laughs> putting the stuff in the yeah, van. I mean, Let's go get pizza. Uh, yeah. whatever. <laughs> the idea of getting paid is just like an extra cherry on top that you weren't even expecting. I mean, the experience is the, is the thing. He found me and then even gave us the 50 bucks, which was cool of him too. Yeah. That's uh that's extremely uh, responsible of that promoter. That's something we don't hear about all that much these days. <laughs> um, that's amazing. Yeah. How did you, uh, what was the, what's the through line between uh, Springsteen to the cramps. Like, how did you land that? Were you getting into skateboarding? Like, what was what's the uh, the through line? Um, yeah, it was all that stuff, and and it's hard to say. I mean, there wasn't as much, uh, you know, there wasn't the the genres like because of maybe because of that place Trenton that we went to see in City Gardens, and I lived you know, in close proximity to New York city. So I understand now after, uh, how amazingly the, the geographically, the place we grew up, the music that was happening there, that was, we were, had, we had access to was uh, a time and a place that, you know, now I understand, like most people don't ever get that, you know? And I, I we would complain about basking rage and be whatever, blah, 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 <laughs> grumbling high schoolers. But, now I am just so grateful and, you know, it was part of our DNA. It was part of growing up in New Jersey and all of that. It was what created what became us as people. And then also what we brought into Bouncing Souls. Um, again, naming records and stuff. I, I can't remember. We were exposed by, from 
I guess, you know, from older sibling, my sister, yeah. Brian, you know, Brian, the bass player, he was more into hardcore stuff. And, 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 and as we started hanging out more, he exposed me to more like minor threat, I think. And those, all the DC stuff and more hardcore stuff. And um, same with like kids in high school, <laughs> you know, it was like, there was a scene, a very specific scene of punkers, you know, and then you'd pass mixtapes around. Like, that's what you did. And that's how you discovered all the little things from mixtapes, literally. Right, right. And um, out of curiosity, like, so um, I know you, you know, you obviously just, you you sing in the Bouncing Souls, but I know you play guitar as well. Like, was guitar where you started when it came to being a musician? I didn't start playing guitar till I was playing with Brian and Pete, really. Um, I was always curious about it, but I literally, you know, I was hanging around. Those guys were playing in a cover band called the switch and we would hang out at Brian's house and they played like Ramones, Billy Idol songs, U2. They were a kind of a party band. Like they would just play whatever songs and, and the clash. So there was some of that, that stuff that was all getting mixed in, but it, it wasn't like, we didn't know about the punk scene really, you know, like so much uh -huh. or these specific, it was just music, you know, it was like, I don't know how else to explain it. So it was just what everybody was into. It wasn't these delineated scenes and stuff as much as there is now. So I would just hang around. And then one day um, they, I don't know who said it, but they were like, Greg, you want us to sing a song? So I was like, yeah, I guess. And so I literally just grabbed the mic, never forget how it felt. I sang uh, I Can't Explain by The Who. So they, they started, dance, 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 you know. Yeah. And uh, I started singing I Can't Explain. And um, I, I will never forget how it felt, you know. Yeah. It was, of course, I sang a little before, but that moment was, you know, again, a, sort of a mind-blowing experience. I didn't even, the energy that happened doing it afterwards i think I, I i'm aware of it now but back then i was just kind of like whoa man like probably just sort of a freaked out teenager yeah um, yeah Were, do you, was that one of those things you think that you had like built in your head like you wanted to try it you wanted to try it you wanted to try it and then finally this opportunity yeah, came and you were yeah. like oh i gotta do it no not at all <laughs> like that's why it was like sort of a, it was a surprise I, I may have even thought about just playing guitar more than actually picking up a microphone and singing because I was really shy. I was introverted by nature, super shy kid, which now in retrospect, I understand the lead singers are the introverts, you know what I mean? Because we, in many cases, need that environment that is like sort of um, it's set up for you. There's a stage, there's music. Give me the microphone. Now I can really have a environment and a safe place to express and be extroverted. Whereas in, in my introverted personality as a kid, uh, I was very uncomfortable in, in, in nor, you know, sort of off the cuff social experiences. I was super shy. I was, you know, for whatever reason for my upbringing or my just it's hard hardwired into me as my personality. Yeah. But that was something that, no, I didn't. I was too shy. I was not going to be like, 
I need to be out there in front of everyone. It was almost the opposite. And it tortured me a little bit because I did love playing music. But then like you, once I started getting on a stage, like you gotta be, you gotta kind of, you're the, you're the lead man. You know, you're, you're the guy who's needs to engage, you know? So I did have a lot of trouble with that, you know, like yeah. in those first five, 10 years, like, something to learn. And, and of course it had, it, it pushed me and it was good for me. It, it exercised all those muscles. That was like, you know, you got to just lean into whatever's happening and go for it. Was, uh, so uh, I don't know if I, if I caught this was, is the bouncing souls the first band that you were ever in, or was there any like localish bands that you were, that you sang in before that or anything like that? Like, was it always just the souls? No, I'm still in my high school band. That's I never amazing. was in ever ever in any other band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say because I, I couldn't find much information if there was anything before. I'm assuming the other members had probably some some well, local actually, bands. No, I, 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 I'm, no, actually, before so there was. We played in the cover band together. Yeah, I I started to sing. We did a few gigs, and then so let me. I, I that's a mistake, and then. An older, a kid that was a couple years older than us. His name was Brad. Um, he he was had graduated from high school and he was still living in town. And he just was a musician. And he started coming over and we started doing music together, which for a very very short time was a, call, a band called Brad Karma and the Absent Minded Fruit Bats. <laughs> so that was the other band we almost be, were for a minute before we became the bouncing souls that was brad ended up leaving and it ended up being the four of us wow 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 well wait so what was the what was the name of the cover band did that have a name um that was called the switch oh, okay the switch got it got very, it got it got it got it uh very cool and then so uh you know it's funny when I, I like when i talk to singers and you know we get on the subject of like how it feels to do it that first time as you were as you were so awesomely explaining um do you remember like what it was like doing that playing that first show like what you remember you were doing on stage because it's kind of funny like how once you're up on stage you don't really know what your body's gonna do like how you're gonna react like what stage presence is gonna you know all of a sudden appear out of you that you never expected do you remember anything about what that was like yeah, I was just a complete maniac because I had I was so insecure that you know I just like covered it up by just kind of going insane, you know, like that was that was my um <laughs> it was all it was all very uh you know, I was very insecure, so I just didn't know what the hell to do. So I would just jump around and be a total maniac. Yeah. So I leaned on that for the beginning, the beginning time. Right. Until, and to my detriment, because, you know, you're not really focusing on what you're doing singing wise. And, you know, so that had, that came eventually, you know. Yeah. Um, Cause you really learn that when you start recording yourself, you know, then you're like, all right, I got to really figure out what I'm doing here. Once, you know, cause back then, we didn't have a voicemail, but it'd be like, Oh, what do I sound like? Let's just record a voicemail. We had boom boxes with cassettes that, you know, everyone of course would play totally loud. Right. And I never really would break down this, you know, the, the nuances of my voice didn't really come out. And so we started doing real recording, which you think about it now and it's sort of weird. Oh, absolutely. That's how, that's how it went down. It's funny too, to think about because I, I, I know exactly, exactly what you're talking about and can totally relate where it's like, you start playing 
and you're going so you know crazy or or whatever but you're you're not thinking about breath control you're not thinking about how you're going to be so winded by the end of the second song and like all of those situations so yeah it's it's a it's huge learning experience especially with you who's actually singing and not just like yelling you know yeah, well, I definitely started off yelling. Like singing was a slow learning curve for yeah, sure. sure. Like sure. actual singing, like, um, and yeah, and then you know, what you do that, and then you then you take it on a road, and you start doing it every night, and that that's a whole other learning curve, like because you're blowing your voice out, and then you're like, I can't do this because I yeah. gotta do this tomorrow. How do I do this? You know, so yeah, what a, a lot of trial by trial and error. Yeah, that's actually a good. That's actually a good. Uh, place to land for a second because i've you know i rarely talk about that with people and you've obviously been doing this for so long early on did you have people giving you advice on how to not blow your voice out or was it just something you had to learn on your own whether it was like relaxing or not drinking soda like what did what were your moves do you remember yeah i mean i did i did take one voice voice lesson um he had a really cool music teacher in high school and she offered to give me a voice lesson. And I was just, I, you know, again, I, it is what it is. I don't want to, you know, bash my, my uh, 16 year old self too much, but I, I was just like, I knew, I knew better. You know, I was like, I don't need to learn any, I'm a punker, you know, I don't need yeah. to learn the right way to do anything, you know, which I needed to have that attitude, but I probably could have learned faster if I was a little bit more <laughs> open-minded, uh, you know? So I, I really did, you know, I, I, um, I would blow out my voice and I did smoke. I smoked cigarettes. I drank and, you know, I knew that that wasn't helping. <laughs> right. Let's put it that way. Um, so, you know, I think I, I went on that train for a while, like, I would just sort of like blow it out and then try not to talk the whole next day. There's just all those elementary things that you're like, all right, I just, I, my voice is barely working. I just got to not talk. So those basic things. And then there was a pivotal big moment, like around 95, 96, when we started really touring that I knew um, I needed to really like, I, there was like a sort of a line in the sand or whatever. They use the expression, like, like smoking and partying, I knew that I like kind of couldn't do it if I really wanted to be good. Cause I knew I wasn't bringing as good of a myself that I, I, I knew I could at that point. So I knew I, I had some experience now I've been in the band for, you know, whatever, six, seven years or more. And I could feel when I was just like hungover or just like, and I was just this, I'm not going to, you know, this isn't going to last. So I really made a hard choice. I quit smoking and I quit drinking and went out on a tour like very soon after, like in 96, 97, where it was like one of the most insane party tours. We opened up for the pie tasters <laughs> and those dudes were going hard at that time. Yeah. Um. So it was, it was again, like you at that age and stuff. And at that time, like these are all coping mechanisms and it's a social thing, you know, drinking and smoking. So it was, it was really actually hard because, you know, everybody else would be like off drinking and I would hang out for a bit and it was cool. But then I was like, I have to sort of relearn how to interact here. 
Absolutely. And as someone who, as you've described yourself as an introvert already, like, yeah, that adds an extra, you know, it's like you're, you're taking away the social lubricant and all of those sorts of things I, I can imagine. Exactly. So that was tricky. Um, How did it affect your, did it help? Did it actually help your voice though? Like when you, when you laid back on that stuff, like you found, you felt the difference? Yes, I did. And um, um, I think the, the short story, I just ended up learning how to do it by just doing it over and over and over. And that helped making that choice was a conscious effort that I knew would help. And it did. But, um, the, uh, I think your muscles, I think it's a muscle thing. You develop muscle memory and, um, um, I don't even know. Oh yeah. So then there's, there's pivotal time. So <laughs> this is kind of funny. I think the next level that I reached as far as the singing aspect, if we're, if we're yeah, going to yeah, keep yeah. on, on this subject. Sure. Um, when we wrote, uh, the songs for how I spent my summer vacation, yeah, it was the first time I had just moved to Los Angeles, which was a big, big deal. It sort of changed the dynamic. We had been like one dude brain for like over 10 years, like <laughs> band, dudes, punk house, van, gigs, yeah. recording, like one dude head, you know? And I finally had met my Shanti who became my wife and I really wanted to move to LA and the guys like grumbled about it and they weren't stoked, but they also were as supportive as they could have been. I think at the time they're like, all right, if that's what you really need to do, we'll yeah. figure it out. But they were not, they were bummed, you know? And I, I understood, but I just like, I needed that. I had knew I needed to grow. I needed to like go do something and be with Shanti. I, it was going to be this new life. So, it was the first time we wrote uh, remotely, which now is sort of more normal. But back then, it was all always about being in the room together, like because that's the only way you could do it. Like, I think you know, digital recording maybe existed at that point, but not like not no like home now. style yeah. recording. No, so uh, I did some stuff on my own, and then Pete and Brian demoed some stuff. And I remember when the first time we got together, they had a handful of, of, of the songs that, you know, became iconic tunes for us. And they, I remember they were like, they, I listened to the demos and they were singing pretty high. And I was like, I was like, and they were like, I was like, this is cool. Like right away. I was like, the songs are cool. I'm like, cool, man. I was into it. You know, it wasn't like some, uh, that part of it wasn't a problem. We all were connecting in a new way. Right. But I yeah. was like, you guys, I can't, I don't know if I can sing this high, you know? And, and they were like, I remember both of them were like, cause they could barely do it. Like on the demos, yeah. they were like, they weren't really doing it. And they were like, yeah, yeah, Greg, we can't really do it, but you can, you know, that was the, that was what they said. Yeah. And I was like, um, all right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I guess challenge accepted, you know, like, um, so all of those songs, I struggled, I struggled with them, but they were awesome. And, and, you know, I, I bumped up against it. I was like, we changed the key and they were like, and it didn't work. It wasn't as good. I wasn't pushing the same vibe. So I knew, you know, it was, I knew it was right. And I right. knew I could almost do it, but I couldn't do it comfortably, you know? Sure. So that whole studio experience, 
recording summer vacation it was like it was it wasn't easy you know and i listen to those recordings now and i'm like way better singer and i can i just can soar through those tunes where back then yeah. i was just white knuckling it so um again and the reason that i began to do it is because we recorded songs like gone you know um I don't even. I can't. Even, the songs on that record, like True Believers, and I can't remember the super high ones uh, that that hit me at that moment. There was a bunch of them. There was like at least five or six. Yeah. And we took them on the road, and I had to do them every single night. And I just, my eventually, my body started to be like, "All right, we can do this. We can do this." And then a year or two later, I'm like, "Now I can really." I'm a better singer, like sure. substantially. Now I felt that was where I felt, like I said before, like I don't think I really reached the point where I could call myself an actual good singer until around that time. Hey there, do you need to get some merch printed? My incredible sponsors over at Anchorfish Printing has a great deal going on right now. You can get 100 soft style shirts for only 499 bucks. Do the math. That's a great deal. For details, email Michael at anchorfishprinting.com or shoot him a call at 773-340-1286. You can also visit anchorfishprinting.com and see what else they have to offer. They are a one-stop shop for all your merch needs. And don't forget to mention the first ever podcast when you place your order. I don't know if we caught this, but what was actually uh, what was actually the Bouncing Souls first show? Where was that at? You know, it probably was a stone's throw from where Meryl Streep grew up. I got to say, okay. Knights of Columbus in Bernardsville. Uh, it's, it's a fun and cool story. There was a teacher at our school who was into punk. She, I remember seeing her. She loved Fishbone. We saw her at the Fishbone show. We thought she was the coolest. We're like, oh man, the hip cool teacher. Is she? She's actually into. Yeah, the hip teacher. She was super cool. She heard about what we were doing. We wanted to do our own show at this Knights of Columbus, and we had to rent it out. So we only had enough money to rent it out. It was probably like, I don't know, it was probably wasn't much. Probably was like 150 bucks. We had to scrounge up to rent it out. But we needed. We we're like, wow, we need a sound system. So she foot the bill. We she rented the sound system for us, Whoa. which is pretty special, you know. She, yeah, it, it was probably like another 150 or 200 bucks or something. Um, so that was it. We played with a band called the Pretzel Men, Bouncing Souls, Ruination. I remember the flyer. It's all coming back. Um, and it was that was our, probably our first, probably beyond, because we had played the cover band. You know, we had done and done gigs like, like at college and stuff and yeah. stuff where we had gigged together. But that was the first Bouncing Souls show. Wow, is that is that Knights of Columbus still around? It's a good question. Yeah, we could probably look it up on the map at this point uh, in Bernardsville. I remember where it was, but I don't know. I don't think so. But now I'm curious. Yeah, for sure, it's a little bit of a landmark there. So you you could have the Meryl Streep statue right next to the Knights of Columbus, and then it'll kind of tie the whole tie the whole town together. I mean, can we do? Can we do a collab of uh, a Bouncing Souls Meryl Streep uh, statue or something? Exactly. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I I back it. You could have a you could dedicate a day uh, every year too. It could be like a, a a town celebration. 
Um, what was, uh, what about the first time you recorded? What do you remember about that? Was it like with a friend for like a, with like a four track or did you guys actually go to a studio for like that first seven inch? We did a recording before that at this guy's place. It was called J and M and he's there forever. I think he might even still be there. Like Pete has, I think Pete, the guitar player has stayed in touch are connected with him just like a guy who had like he i think he had just like a side house like a garage he might have converted and he had a little studio in there like i don't remember the gear but it was just like and we recorded a demo there um that was before anything else and that was my first going to a studio loading in your gear and there's an engineer there and we paid by the hour he was somewhere in jersey like i think pete knows more details because uh, a few years ago, he brought came up and Pete's like, he's still there, you know. Like this was like whatever ten That's five amazing. ten years ago. I can't remember. I gotta ask Pete about it. But he has still has some sort of studio there, or did five ten years ago. Uh, so yeah, that was a cool positive experience. Um, but again, that was only I was essentially just recording what I did live, and there was no producer there yeah. or anyone that really was like challenging what I was doing once I was recorded that kind of came later and that was like another level of learning how to do that where now you're really getting microscopic with your parts because you're you're not able to do that back then we didn't do that we we were so just punkers like yelling and being loud that you know we didn't really break down our parts and and, and see our parts together as much as we'd learn to do later yeah. What do you remember? I mean, I, th I feel like one of the most special moments when you reflect on those uh, first recording experiences is hearing it back through stereo speakers the first time and how that felt. Do you have do you have any uh, memory of that? Yeah, it was it was it was rough. I remember later, not too long later, it was when we got our first manager and we had some songs and we went. I can't remember all the details, but it was really the my most horrifying recording experience because we had booked time. We had the a few music. We might have just had one song. The guys tracked this music in one studio, and I went to a smaller studio to do just the vocals. Okay. And this was too much for me. This was too much for me. It was just like <laughs> there I was in the booth, and everyone's just sitting out in the – engineering room like and i had not done this work like that you need to do where you really know where you stand with every aspect of the lyrics and the melody and everything i just was like trying to do it and then the playback was like uh this is not working like and oh, I, no. I was like horrifying i was like oh crap you know and we actually didn't get through it you know and I remember wow. just being like, oh, God, like it was crushing. It was definitely crushing. Um, but again, you learned from that. So I was like, all right, I need to fucking figure this out. You know, we got to go back and figure it out. And because everybody, you know, we were buds. And we're like, all right, well, let's all figure it out. Like nobody just like shut me out or anything. You know, oh, that's good. We all figured it out. Yeah. I, yes. It's funny. That's like something I, I don't know how many times I've talked about on the show. I think a couple of times, but it's kind of funny for singers uh, to talk about this, which is, do you um, prefer your band members being present when you're tracking vocals, or do you prefer to kind of just be on your own with maybe the engineer? 
it's better to be on your own. Um, but I need everyone to, I need everyone's input to some extent so they can't be too far away, you know? Yeah. There's, there's the validation thing that we're all looking for. (laughs) Well, you know, and there's, we do collaborate a lot. So it varies from song to song. Like say for, for example, Brian and Pete, it's primarily, maybe they brought the primary idea and down to the, the way the phrasing is and stuff. So a lot of times when, many times now Brian and Pete, we'll be like, no, that's not how it is. You know? So we would, we'll work that out together. Like, or they'll be like, Oh, Greg, you're doing that differently, but I like it better. You know? So it goes every other way. And then like, no, this is the way it's, it's way cooler this way. Check it out. And then I would be like, Oh, and then, so we weren't doing these things yet. Yeah. You really have to have hashed it all out, of course, before you start recording. So we would do that on the fly. And sometimes it was hard. Like I would be, you know, insecure and stuff in certain times. So yeah, of course there's, there's an insecurity and I had, I've had trouble, you know, like even all the way up to, you know, in, in not necessarily bumping heads with everyone else, but just everyone's presence uh, in, in the either engineering room or, or listening back, you know, you can't get free of that, you know? So I can do it now because I've just done it so much that I don't think about it anymore. Right. I can pretty much do it. Um, but the guys will always just sit in another room. They're not going to sit there and stare at you. And even if they're just vibing you out, cause you're just distracting, you know, it's just, it's just distracting if someone's peering at you through a window, you know, you just want to be able to focus. But again, uh, I want people's, you know, if, if there's little in details that people care about, cause we've written the songs together, they can't be too far away. Or if we hit, I'll hit a vocal and, and then everyone will listen back. Right. Right. And then they'll be like, Oh, what about this? And what about that? And then be like, we sort it out and then move on. Totally. Totally. One of the things that I think is so awesome about, uh, your band's history is the fact that like right out the gate, you guys started your own label. And I was curious what actually the motivation for that was. And on top of the motivation for that, um, I'd be curious to hear how difficult that was to navigate at the time when it came to pressing plants and learning how to deal with the art. And like, you know, just because I can only imagine how much, you know, uh, more Wild West that was back in the day. Well, um, we learned again, we learned the hard way. We didn't, you know, and we knew about like DIY, do it yourself stuff that was going on in the punk scene. But we at first were not, you know, completely there. We needed to go down the other road, which we did, which we made cassette demos. We made press kits because that's what you did in the early 90s. Right. And there were a few major labels in New York City. Brian made them all super amazing. Like he did art on these on these uh, envelopes and on the cassettes. And we put tons of time and energy into them we went you know we fat we we you know it wasn't easy to even get a contact at these places and you didn't want to just walk into these like intimidating offices in new york and be like here's my demo you know right they would just be like whatever you know so we'd have to get sort of a contact and we played that game hard we played it for like a year or two we got (laughs) We started to get, and when they gave us, sent us rejection letters in the mail, wherever, 
Electra Records. Thanks for sending your demo. And we said, I started putting them up in the bathroom in our, in our <laughs> punk house. I was going to ask if you yeah. held on to them. I don't still have them, yeah. but we had them for a long time. There was a bunch. There was probably at least eight, nine, ten rejection letters all up in the bathroom. That's amazing. And um, uh, I think that we hit a breaking point. Like we realized we're like, um, hey, Shanti, check this out. Sorry. Um, let me grab that. Um, sorry. So, um, so then, uh, we literally were like, this is a waste of our fucking time. You know what I mean? We really realized how we were not, you know, it was the moment to be like, you got to live your, you got to just do your own thing or no one's going to do it. Like, so we literally, and that's what we made. So since we went down that road, we made an educated choice to be like, Ian Mackay is our, you know, our guiding light, you know, he that's in discord. You know, we didn't have a lot of examples back then. Sure. That was the shining example. We had, you know, um, we played, we opened up for Fugazi in 89. So we had, you know, interacted with Ian in person a little bit. Yeah. Was definitely a mentor. Um, didn't know him really personally. We just met him for a second and that was it. And, uh, but a huge, huge mentor as far as an example to follow. So we made that hard choice. We're like, we are going this road now. We're going to just make our own recording. We're going to, yes, all that, which is what you did back then. You cobble up some cash to pay for the art. And Brian did. Luckily, we had Brian, who is a great artist in the band, to do all the art and make it look cool. And he started creating the visual stuff that, was so eye-catching especially at that time like we made stickers you know and just stick them around new brunswick because that's what you did yeah sometimes there'd be bands that never played but they had stickers all over town they hadn't even played yet we used to have <laughs> a joke about that where you'd start seeing some band's sticker and be like have we, is this even a band you know like you'd start seeing somebody made some stickers yeah and they haven't even played yet man uh, um so yeah yeah well, so yeah, and then so, how did you uh, how did you navigate like getting your record pressed? Like, was there a pressing plant uh, on your in New Jersey that you went to, or were you having to like search that out? Like, what do you remember of that process? I can't remember the details. Um, sure, I know we knew people that had a couple of little labels that we got the contacts from. We found out where it was. I I probably. I can't remember who handled it, even the vinyl pressing stuff. I remember the first seven inch we got and Brian did the art. I remember going through that whole process and Brian had to learn how to do all that, the art aspect of it. Do you remember how it, all of us were there? You know, Do you remember how it felt to like hold that record the first time it arrived? Yeah, that was incredible. That was incredible. And, and uh, you know, we had whatever, uh, I don't know how many, a few hundred of those first seven inches. And you know, we'd sell them at shows. And then and when we were bored, we would just like get on our skateboards and go skate down into Brunswick with a few seven inches and be like, either try to sell them or give, give them away. That was how we got our music out. Sure. True boots it's on so the ground. Funny yeah, no, that's how we were. It was just like one band dude had just like, Oh, I've got some time to kill, which is, it seems so funny and whatever. You're just like, 
20 years old, like going to go skate around, I might as well grab a couple seven inches and, you know, and a couple stickers yeah. and go do that. You know, what's funny is I, I don't know if I, if I could, if I uh, found anything online about this, but obviously you guys got your name from the, from the Doc Martens connection. Um, did, have you ever had a relationship or conversation with them about that? Like, have they always been cool about it or is it just sort of a hats off? Like you keep your distance, don't talk about it situation. For years and years, we were always kind of like, oh man, it'd be so awesome if we get big enough to like get uh, some free docs or you know, yeah. like a sponsorship on some level. Um, and we were a little, little angsty about it for so long because even after we got kind of big, like I think we reached out to them and they just didn't care. Like nobody really cared sure. um, for a long time. And then finally they came around and it was only like probably like 10 years ago or something. It was like not that long ago. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was on uh like at a festival in in europe and you know they they were coming to the festival with like a whole store and they've got all their reps and so they were like hey we're they reached out to our management we're like we're gonna be you know at this festival of souls and we like give you guys some boots or shoes whatever you want and we're like yes finally they're gonna at least give us some freaking shoes yeah that's the best case scenario. but no there was no like yeah there was no um, I guess there could never be a cease and desist because we spelled it differently. It's but smart, yeah. Um, there, there was Brian did this awesome flyer like a Jack Daniels uh, sort of logo. It was for the Hot, Hot War Music Bouncing Souls T-shirt and a tour, and a, it was full on. We did get a cease and desist from them, which is also kind of cool. You're like, oh, cool. They We're noticed. About, we, you know, we got some, we got some, uh, we got some legs. You know, to, for Jack Daniels to care. You know, <laughs> know sure. again in our, in our my our minds were like we're this is free advertising for you Absolutely. you know it's like that's that sort of shows how like sort of archaic marketing thinking they probably had like you're like why would you stop this band from like putting your your stuff out everywhere for nothing you know right but, right you know, I, and this is not, I don't mean this as any sort of a comparison or anything like that, but I mean, it just, it reminds me a little bit of, um, so insane clown posse, you know, they rep Fago that drink Fago and apparently Fago refuses oh, yeah. to like, let them even get a discount for them using it at their shows and whatever they like Fago's like, we want nothing to do with insane clown posse. So, Hey, at least you got a pair of free docs. Yes. No, I, I'm, I'm stoked, man. I don't ever, uh, I don't ever squaw, you know, grovel, you know, grumble at free stuff. Absolutely. Um, so when, uh, you know, you guys have such a, obviously a big expansive discography, I just wanted to sort of like, uh, touch on a few points. I was curious with, uh, with maniacal laughter, that was the first record you did with, uh, Tom Wilson. And I know that was also on yeah. BYO. So like, was that, I think I saw that you guys did, had done a tour with Youth Brigade. Did Youth Brigade sort of introduce you to that whole world? Because that's like a West Coast recording situation. Like, how did that all come to be? Is that is that yeah. correct? It's a fun story. And I love Tom so much. So I like love talking about it. Yeah. Um, it's a really fun story. So um, we, when the Offspring record came out that Tom Tom produced and engineered, just by chance. Now this was like probably 94 ish. I don't know exactly, but we were on, we had just gotten our booking agent and she booked us like these small basement shows and like 
little little shows. And on this tour, we had two dates with the Offspring, which before the, this was before the record was big. They were a band on Epitaph, and we're opening the show with another band. And we're like, oh, cool, these are going to be some of the bigger shows because we knew about Epitaph at that point. Epitaph was just starting to really have some legs right before the Offspring made it like the biggest, the biggest independent yeah. label that it ever was or something. I don't even know what it became. So we're on tour. This is the funny moment. So we're on tour. And I remember I was in Lubbock, Texas. It was hot. It was summertime. And we were heading through Texas to Florida to for these Offspring shows that were like going to be the bigger ones. We're playing this little bar in Lubbock, Texas. We load in. It's afternoon. And I'm looking up at the screen. It's MTV's playing, which, of course, was like everything revolved around MTV at that point. It was like the decider of what was big and what wasn't. There was like nothing else. It's the exact opposite of how it is now. Of you course. Know? Um, I'm sitting there and the Offspring video comes on and I double take and I'm like, oh, you know, it was like, near, 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 you know, <laughs> keep them separated. It was that one. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I'm like, yo, wait, Offspring's on MTV, like, and it, it it took a minute to sink in, like, and it's hard to explain to anyone that doesn't understand that now how big of a deal that was. You can't, I can't even tell you by seeing like a band that we were about to play with in a week or six days was on MTV right now was just sort of like, what the fuck is going to happen there? Yeah, literally that probably that night or the next day, our booking agent calls us and is like. Uh, the shows with the offspring is moving to a bigger outdoor venue from like a five, four to 500 cap to like this 2000, 2500 cap outdoor thing, which we'd never even played a show close to that big at that point. Try to make this, try not to get, make this too long. This is going to wind back. I promise. I love it. <laughs> okay. 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 We play these shows and it's amazing outside in Florida in the summertime, amazing shows. We're hanging around after this show outside, everyone's drinking beer and I turn around and there's this tall dude, kind of an older dude, you know, at the time he was probably like 50, 49, 50, Tom was, he was hanging around drinking beer and our bud, Lamar Benoy, who was on tour with us, we ended up had written the song Lamar Benoit already. He knew who he was. He was like, yo, that's Tom Wilson. He recorded the dead Kennedys. He recorded TSOL. And I'm just like, Oh, I knew the records, but I didn't right. really know who produced them. Yeah, I wasn't that much of a record. I didn't. So all I knew is as soon as Lamar told me the records, I was like, Oh crap. So he, Tom, Tom tuned into us. He was like, we were hanging around and he, he was like, Oh, Hey, you guys were that opening band, right? You guys were, he started, he just went into this thing. He's like that one song, it starts off with the bass. And he, he was talking about Joe lies. He's like, man, he's like, you guys really like hit some kind of like crazy Sonic. He was kind of like probably a little stoned and like, just <laughs> like he was moved. Yeah. He was moved by it, you know? So we were just like, of course, like, really? You know, like, oh, cool. Thanks, Tom. You know, like very much like that. So he, he goes into this thing. He sees he's inspired. He's been inspired by us. And then 
he's like chats for a minute and then he's like well yeah you guys are great good luck you know and he's like if you want to make a record give me a call you know within weeks probably the record he does with the offspring it is like the biggest record you know yeah whatever in that in the genre it, it just explodes the genre which i'm sure you remember i don't need to explain it i guess because and of course we are now holding this card we're walking around like tom wilson said he wants to record our record and we are just like you know it's like this crazy concept you know like yeah. maybe he didn't even mean it or whatever but it's funny because <laughs> he whatever it was six months later we were ready to record we got our manager we just had gotten a manager and she called him up and he agreed to do it like on like ridiculous terms like we had no money nothing like yeah in like six days and um here's the funny part which i want to tell you but it's just like in that session, we're recording in LA in uh, North Hollywood at Tracks East. You might know. It. Oh, sure, um, yeah. And we're sitting outside, and up walks Gene Simmons. Gene is like, "Hey, how you guys doing? You guys in a band?" And we're like, "Yeah, yeah." Oh, great! Good to meet you guys. He goes in. They're like mixing one of their like MTV uh, live unplugged things okay. in, the, in the other b room or whatever yeah and so we see we're interacting with freaking gene and paul stanley comes and goes and we end up chatting they're super chatty and they're they're super cool then we find out we tell we come in we're like tom paul stanley's outside like paul stanley and gene simmons and then tom's like oh geez they want me to produce their next record <laughs> i mean it's like how how am i gonna produce a kiss record I mean, come on, dude. I can't do that. He's like, Aerosmith's calling me. Like, what am I going to do? I don't want it. I can't do an Aerosmith record. <laughs> so at that moment, to put this in perspective, now, Tom Wilson is the most sought after producer in rock right. and roll now because he's produced the zillion selling record. What record does he record? He records the Bouncing Souls record you know that's the first record he did after the offspring record so that's a fun yeah. a little fun fact related to tom wilson and he's just again such a mentor and again uh i'm getting a little emotional like he's passed and right. he means so much to us and um uh, just a, a again a very crucial mentor of uh, as a human and, and as a as a producer yeah, you know, I saw I saw some rumblings about the the Aerosmith lore, and I appreciate you sharing that story, like getting like the real the real inside of that. And I was laughing because looking at the um the release schedule of your record, and then the release and what came next of Aerosmith, and I just love to imagine what Aerosmith's album Nine Lives would have sounded like had it been recorded by Tom Wilson. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a. Right, like the what the the weird and crazy things we'll ne we'll never know. Yeah, sliding doors yes. moment for sure. You know, you guys ended up signing to to Epitaph. Then shortly thereafter, I, I think I had read that uh, maybe you guys were doing some shows with the Descendants, and you met Brett Gurowitz through that. Um, did you feel like yeah. because this is now like in the total boom of the, you know, Green Day, Offspring, all these bands being big MTV hits? Um, 
did you guys ever feel any sort of pressure? And I'm asking this uh, as someone who's also put out records on Epitaph. So this is not me trying to throw throw our buddy Brett under the under the bus. But did you feel like there was any sort of pressure um, from the label standpoint to be the next that? Or do you think that they were just happy to put out records of punk bands? No, uh, um, there wasn't. Epitaph, Epitaph, from the minute we met Brett, was always the opposite. And I think, again, to Brett's credit, you know, I think probably because he never ever, yeah. I'm guessing, sure. I don't know this for sure. I, I'm just guessing like he might probably cause maybe he never, maybe hoped for obviously, but never expected to get the kind of success he had with the offspring that he was able to, cause he was, he's a band guy and he is a creator. And so he was able to provide this to so many bands. Be like, do what you do, you know, like completely just do what you do. And no, not never a word to be like, oh, we need to make this song. Whatever. Right. There not never was a no word. No classic about like, oh, I don't know if I hear a single, yes. you know, like we got to have another rancid or something like that. That's amazing. No. no. Um, you know, if if you wanted Brett to be that, he would. Sure. He's a producer. So he would also go go that road, but he, he wouldn't make anyone do that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, and then before we get to the, the uh, getting closer to talking about your new record that's coming out, um, you know, something I noticed about the How I Spent My Summer Vacation record, which um, from afar, I can, uh, is it safe to say that might be the fan favorite? Do you feel like over, just, you know, with the amount of songs you guys play off of it? Like, yeah, uh, it's one of the Yeah, for sure. Do you? Yeah. You know, because sure. you guys had recorded, from what I can see with Tom, it's like you guys had recorded all these records on the West Coast, and then you get this record, a few, you know, albums into your career that is kind of considered like, you know, one of the bigger fan favorites. Do you think the fact that that was recorded on the East Coast had anything to do with that? Like, you know, you guys coming home and now you're making a record at home. Um, I don't think so. I, again, um, I think... It was, it was like, I think like everything in life, it was just like a lot of factors that, that sort of were getting to us, getting to that point. Um, the way it was recorded, if we want to break it down to that aspect, I think it's an important detail is that that was the first time. So Pete and Brian chose really uh, as far as producing their sounds, they had done those records up till summer vacation and weren't completely happy with the production on because they had Thomas producing and it, essentially he had the final say. It was just almost like we never could afford it. So Tom would just, we would just, he would just put on the amps on and like put the mics up and just sort of like be loud. And then yeah. that's how he did it. He's how he always did it. He's like, I just know one trick it sounds really terrible. I, he hears it loud in the speakers and it sounds horrible, but he's just like, trust me, you know, you're just like, all right, you know, he's Tom Wilson. Yeah. So, and that's why you, why maniacal laughter is what it is because Tom, Tom gives it this, that, that rawness that it was there in our performances, but he just brings yeah, it it's the charm. Um, but then when it came to the, yeah, and it's perfect for maniacal laughter, but, the you know after we did up to hopeless romantic those had their charms too but we were becoming more we needed to change and evolve a little bit we weren't just like slamming out these live tunes in the studio so that's why 
there was that chain turning point where like we did three records with Tom and that was time. We can't do another one. We have to do something different. And Pete and Brian were like, I want to have control over how I sound. And that's why we got John Seymour and he agreed to that. He's like, I'm going to engineer and we're going to create your sounds together. And that's was the dynamic that um, geographically, maybe not as much as a factor, but that I would say is a big factor. And the songwriting, I think we just all as a group had reached a place as well with our songwriting and it just hit on that record. Like with that production element and our songwriting experience is what, maybe are the rest was the recipe for me. Okay. That makes sense. I was just trying to, uh, to throw some mystique about the, uh, the, the, the New Jersey. Did you record that in New Jersey or New yeah. York? Was it New York? We recorded it in oh. Massachusetts at okay. this place called the farm. Okay. Got it. Got it. It was this, uh, so it was on the East coast. So that's yeah, why for I, sure, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I think it's awesome the people that you've worked with over all these years, be, be, you know, between Tom and then also you did a record with like Ted Hutt, Bill Stevenson, and I have this new record with Will Yip. Yeah. Um, is there something that at this point in your guys' career that if, you know, you guys been together for so long at this point that when you go in with someone new, um, that you're excited to learn about, like, is there something that you're, are you kind of just like letting the experience be itself or, um, is there something you're hoping to get from working with new people at this point? Um, yeah, no, honestly, I'm always like, when we first met, like we, I hadn't even met Will. I haven't even, hadn't even spoken to him when we first did that first EP oh, okay. with him. And Pete had a phone call with him and, um, that's how open we were on, on some level to be like, I, I don't follow who's, who are the good produce, cool producers now. Like I, at all, like, you know, Justin, our manager recommends mentioned him and then everyone like George and Pete and Brian were like, yeah, okay, I'm up for, you know, I'm sure Justin wouldn't recommend him if he's sure. not cool. Like that's why yeah. I, where we're at. I was like, I'm up for so have done everything that I'm like, I don't need this person to be anything. Um, and we just showed up and Will's like, Hey guys, good to meet you. You know, just instantly hit it off and just had a great time. And then we were like, we had so much fun with Will. Let's just, let's yeah. do that again. You know? Oh, that's awesome. He's a, he, he's yeah. a great dude. Yeah. And honestly, like Jeremy, like every time we do it, I'm like, we, are we doing another record? Like, does the world need another bouncing souls record? Like I am there. And that's what I, where I'm at. I'm like, what is it going to, we've done every possible version of a bouncing souls record. Like, it needs to have a motivation. I think that's why this, the 10 stories high came about in a way that was totally different because it, and it was forced on us, you know, like through the pandemic, through the lockdown, creating the Patreon and then having, you know, choosing to do this sort of awkward kind of like, okay, we're going to have chats with people and then write songs. Sounds totally weird. I guess we're going to try it and see how it goes. And, and it, it, it luckily worked out. Okay. And again, Force the old dog to learn a couple new tricks. For sure. Yeah. So for listeners at home, you know, like in, in case maybe you didn't catch this part, something that is super interesting about the story is that uh this record is inspired by your fans. So like, you know, like from what I read, it seems like you interviewed uh different people through your Patreon and then kind of got their story and then took little notes and were like, oh, that's a good thing to sort of um inspire what could be a song. So 
Um, I'm curious though, you know, to get kind of more into yeah. that. So when you were conducting these interviews about, uh, was it like specifically about their lives mm -hmm. or was there like a specific topic that you were like, oh, how does this relate to, you know, like where, what was the start point with this? Yeah, there was, there was no okay. criteria. Like, and, and, and as interviewers on that level, the bouncing souls aren't great. And I have to say that George, the drummer, we learned through this whole thing is probably the best interviewer among us. Um, we literally were like, okay, no plan. We would just get on a zoom chat and be like, Hey, how's it going? What's your name? Where are you calling? Where are you from? You know, we just, we knew nothing because they just were 10 people that chose this tier on Patreon to, to get that. That was part of what they, they were getting. No, there was no qualifications at all needed. You know, we, we were just rolling the dice and I guess, you know, I have faith that I'm like, everyone has a story and it's interesting, you know, and I knew that, you know, I love to hear people's stories. Look at us. We're, we're on a pod, your podcast. We love to hear people's stories. I love to hear people's stories. You obviously love to hear people's stories because we share so many things that are important to us, you know, like as far as the things, our experiences in life. So I know as a songwriter, there's going to be nuggets of things that happen. And I had faith, even though and it worked out. So that, that was what we were going on, but there was no criteria. Like one couple came on and was like, Hey, how's it going? Is it okay if my partner sits in with us? And we're like, yeah, cool. And so it's, it's just a man and a woman. And they're like, he's like, yeah, we just met like two weeks before lockdown and we decided to move in together. And we're all like, Oh, cool. How's that going? You know? And they're like, it's going okay, you know? <laughs> and so like, boom, I'm like, this is a love story. This song's going to be, it's got to be a love story, you know, right there. So right, it's happening like that. That's sort of how it happened right. in the moment. And that's one of the songs that went in that direction. Um, did you, I can't think of another example off the top of my head. Did you but, guys, yeah. uh, this is kind of fun. Did you guys share the progress of those songs with the people or was it just like you'll hear it when it's done no yeah no they just got the they just got the final product and they all have you know different versions that are on the record which makes i think makes oh, them cool. really special because we didn't even this wasn't like oh we're gonna make a record this is yeah. how we're gonna do it it wasn't even that it was like we're just scraping in the dark through the pandemic to keep connected and sort of like you know, keep the band afloat even and, and stay connected. So this was a cool thing to connect. And then once we got like halfway through it, that's when the chat started coming up. We're like, could this be a record? And I was like, why don't we, it could be as a, as a like, um, sort of a concept record. We're like, here's our pandemic record. We released a couple thousand vinyl, weird concept, do a cover, just like those songs on vinyl, a weird concept. And I was on that train for a minute. I was like, but then as we kept going, the other guys were like, why don't we just, these songs are pretty good. Maybe we should send them to Will and see what he says. And then that's kind of Will, we, we trusted Will to be like, yeah, he's like, these are good. Let's make a record. Let's just, you know, change a thing here and there, add a bridge here and there. And like, you know, so that's kind of what we ended that's up amazing. with. That's uh, so overall, like, did this end up becoming like a lot more of a collaborative record amongst the you guys as a band than you expected to because if you're taking notes from these interviews and then are you like discussing them amongst yourselves when yeah. it comes to start writing lyrics and things like that or is does someone sort of take yeah. the reins on that 
a little bit. I, I was more in the lead with the lyrics just because of the process we had to do remotely. You know, I, I would, we would do a Zoom meeting with the person, 30 minutes, and the next day, we would just have the band. We would have like 40, 30, 40 minute Zoom meeting tops because everything was super tight. We we had we had to finish the songs oh, in wow. two weeks. And that was, we tried, we kept stuck hard to that rule. So I would be like, you know, whatever the next day I would say, Hey guys, I'm working with this idea. Like for example, the guy who, who in college, he had a radio show. He called it true believer radio. So I was like, boom, that's going to be the title. Everyone's like, yup, that's the title. True believer radio. And the guy sort of told us about how he really learned sort of like how to be he learned he sort of found himself again through being that that person on the radio like trying to be somebody i think he said something like i was trying to be someone and i found myself that way and i was like that is great i wrote that down he said yeah. something like that and it's in the song it's like i found myself trying to be someone else or something yeah. like that and uh so like that was a real nugget. I instantly would be like, oh, that's a nugget. That could be in a song. No problem, you know. And uh, so the guys sort of trusted me. I'm like, I got this. I got this little nugget. I got this little nugget. And they're like, go, you go, Greg. You know, it's it's going to be cool. And then they would come back with a music idea. And we would literally in like a half an hour, Brian and Pete would spend an hour hacking out a couple of music ideas, record them, get on the call and be like, here's what we got, guys. And then George and I would be like, all right, maybe that part longer, that part, repeat that part again, and then go to the intro and then back. And then we'd be like, all right, cool, done. And then they would put it to a click and send it to me and George. And then I would spend a couple days sort of working out the lyrics, put it out, shoot it back. And then that was it. They would lay guitars over, George would lay drums, and then we would just be done wow. in two weeks. So that was a whole new yeah. thing for us. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Not a lot of nitpicking, not a lot of nitpicking at all. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like it's nice to, especially, you know, the, again, with your band being around as long as it has, to still be able to, you know, figure out new ways to write a record together, you know? So it's not stale. Exactly. Exactly. Like, because we are so the old dogs that need new tricks. You know, like I said, like, I, and none of us want to do the same thing. We don't want to, we didn't want to do that. So it was refreshing and we were inspired and that's what you need. Otherwise it's like, if you're not inspired, like I wouldn't want to talk about it with right. you now. You know what I mean? I've, I've done, you know, like I've been there. I'm like, yeah, you know, I want to be, it, I want to talk about it. Cause I'm yeah, it's, about you, it. you guys really gave yeah. like new definition to the phrase fan service. You actually made it a positive thing. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, we gained from it and they gained from it. And it's like, that's a wonderful thing to, I'm glad to be a part of It's not, you know, it has some meaning, especially at this point, because what the fuck, we should not be doing this. If, if, if it doesn't have, and it's not fun or it's, there's not meaning to it and we're not connecting. Yeah. It's like, we definitely not um, be doing before this. I hit you with the, with the last question. Um, I thought of a topic that I wanted to, to yeah. bring up really quick, which is, uh, you guys had like a pretty legendary basement venue in Asbury park, right? Um, we did shows New Brunswick, in New I Brunswick. Yes. Um, that's okay. Um, we had a couple of few seriously memorable backyard shows. 
at our house at 174 Commercial Avenue. Um, they were remembered for years and years. And um, there was definitely a basement show scene right in New Brunswick that, I don't know, maybe it's still going, but it definitely, we gave it some real life. It was sort of dead. Like there was a punk scene in the 80s in New Brunswick. And then we came, we showed up in 89 and 90 and all the old punkers were like, what are you guys doing here? There's nothing going on here anymore. Like can't court tavern. There's no gigs anymore. It was very much like um, grumbly old punkers. The scene had kind of passed on some wave. And we were like, what? We were just stoked. We're like, no way, dude, we're a band. We're going to be, we're, we're doing shows in our, I was like, and they were just kind of like, Oh, okay. There's some new kids uh, doing stuff. And um, so, yeah, that might be what you're referencing. In Asbury Park, there is an amazing venue for 10 or 12 years called the right. Asbury Lanes that had a cool, very cool run. Um, and that, you know, I brought in national touring acts and stuff, but um, that's changed now. I had texted. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if that's well, sort I had of texted, a, um, Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a longtime friend of uh, Jeff Rickley from Thursday, who also had a basement venue oh, yeah. uh spot in new brunswick early on yeah. and i remember him um saying i think at one point during our friendship about how yeah. like the influence came from the shows that you guys would do and uh, i actually texted him this morning saying like do you remember any specific things from seeing any shows at your guys place and i think he said that he saw uh sick of it all play your place and he remembered something about oh, yeah let me actually see what this text was because it was kind of funny something i think it related to a uh a toilet situation he said it was uh, i also remember there being an incident with oh, the yeah. toilet going off the roof yeah. oh my god yeah well i'm uh that's super fun i haven't seen jeff in a, in a long time um but I, i'm i'm happy i know that you know those guys came like sort of on and the next generation right um so you know I never got to know them very well, but you know, we were on the warp tour together and stuff, but they certainly were like probably rolling in and seeing the stuff we were doing totally as a, in that, again, that torch carrying thing where you kind of, again, need those people in the world. And that makes it so cool, you know? And then I remember now getting to know those dudes a little bit on tour and be like, there's band Thursday, you know, they say they came to our shows. It's it's amazing, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, all that stuff is 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 a uh, very very special. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, shit, man. Let me hit you with the last question, which is, um, when was the first time that you felt yeah. like you were doing the thing you've been working so hard towards? Well, you know, again, it's I I thought about the question, um, and. It's tough to, to to nail one, but I have a fun story that's related to it. That is, it, it's related to my dad, which is sort of a, uh, you know, my dad was I always very close to, and he's very very supportive. But when we started doing, he always wanted me to go to college, and I just sort of took a few classes at, at Middlesex County College, and then just was like, Dad, I'm like, I keep blowing it off because I'm going to do shows. I don't want to waste your money. And he was just so like, oh, damn it. You know, like, you're not even going to go to county college. You know, he just was yeah. like, all right. You know, but he couldn't get too mad at me because I didn't want to like waste his money. You know, he was paying. He's like, I'll pay for it if you go to college. Right. And so we're doing the band and he's sort of grumbly kind of supporting. I was living in New Brunswick and I come back and I remember 
the first time we played City Gardens and we made we did like three shows over the weekend and we I think we had like we made like seven eight thousand dollars in t-shirts or something so I show up at my dad's house and it's a Sunday night or it's the Monday or whatever and he's like how you doing I'm like pretty good dad and and uh He's like, how was your weekend? I was like, good. We did shows. And I was like, we made $8,000 in t-shirts, right? And the look on his face <laughs> and his reaction, like, it was like something happened to him. So this is maybe it's more about my dad. <laughs> That's awesome. I'll, I'll make this about my dad as opposed to me. Because no. Because well, I could see. Well, that. yeah. It's the parental acceptance. Those are huge moments for people that like us that, you know, it's like you, you decide you don't want to go to college. Your parents are now set in a place where they're going to be concerned about your future because, you know, how you, all they know about your band is that you're like probably playing basements or, you know, you're living uh, you know, probably not a very extravagant exactly. lifestyle. So then all of a sudden be like, yo, we sold $8,000 in t-shirts. That's going to break their brain. Yeah, it did. It, it certainly did. And then from that point on, you know, like dad was like, oh, it just, it changed. He, he it tweaked him from being, you know, toleratingly supportive, like waiting for me to just drop this and move on to the next thing absolutely to be like all right I, you know he, he really continued to be supportive and then it's so rewarding you know he's got like a, a bouncing soul sticker on his on his car and he just love i love hearing his stories it's like gregory i was getting gas and a guy says hey you know the bouncing souls and i'm like you know he's loves it you know he's like yeah, that's my son he's a singer and they're like what you know so Right. Those things oh, are never, awesome. they're always wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Dude, Greg, thank you so much, man. This was, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate your time. And that is our show. Thank you so much to Greg for coming on and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now if you head on over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon where Greg answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. Thank you so much and I will see you on Monday with a brand new radio hour. Bye-bye.